that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM and CJSF.ca. I'm Andy Longhurst, and on today's show... We're headed back to London for part two of our mini-series on the London Olympic Games. I'll be speaking at length with Julian Chain um, of the Counter-Olympics Network, as well as hearing from pro-development economists and developers about the perceived benefits um, to the working-class East London neighborhoods. Um, That and so much more on the program. This is The City. Stay with us. Mega events such as the Olympic Games have often been described as a preferred tool of place promotion and marketing, and a primary connection between the local and the global. The Olympics are a global spectacle literally taking place in a single locale. Olympic Games are tightly interwoven into the urban economy and redevelopment schemes. They are also an increasingly important driver in the creation of new leisure and consumption spaces and the interests of international property firms. Like all mega events, the Olympics are almost exclusively an urban phenomena that require large public and private investments. While these investments are usually place-bound in the form of bricks and mortar infrastructure, they play a crucial role in, in tying local processes into wider economic circuits. Circuits that are not simply transnational, but transnationally competitive and recurrent as cities vie to host high-profile events, gatherings, and spectacles. And that was an excerpt from uh, Serberg, Van Winsberg, and Wiley's uh, publication in the journal City, Mapping the Olympics Growth Machine, Transnational Urbanism, and the Growth Machine Diaspora. And I just uh, like to use that because it it really uh, ties together a lot of the themes that we're talking about um, when we talk about the Olympic Games. And uh, so... This uh, this is uh, part two in a in a mini series exploring uh, the London Olympic Games, and uh, the the title is London Plays Games um, and uh, the remaking of East London, which is what we're going to be looking at in in today's uh, edition of the city. So first, um, we're going to be talking primarily with Jewel, uh, excuse me, uh, Julian uh, Chain of the Counter Olympics Network, based in London, England, and um, he's the spokesperson um, around a lot of their activities. And um, but first, we're going to hear about the cost and the perceived benefits of the Olympic Games. This is from the Financial Times, um, with uh, a perspective from Goldman Sachs. Um, as you uh, certainly know, as uh, a large investment banking uh, c- company. Let's talk about the Olympics. It's a subject which is really dominating conversation here in London with only three weeks to go. The giant Olympic rings are now in place on, the, on Tower Bridge, just down the Thames from me here. But there is also a very big debate underway. It's going to be very exciting but it's also going to create a lot of expense and a lot of inconvenience at a point when Britain is going through austerity. Can it really be justified? Are there really going to be the long-term benefits that some politicians claim? And what are the evidence from previous Olympiads? Now, Goldman Sachs has a long history of uh, looking at the economic impacts of sporting events, and they've just produced this very interesting report on the impact of the Olympics. 
With me now to discuss this is uh, Goldman's chief European economist, Hugh Pill. Hugh, thanks for, thanks for being here today. We're going to be spending eight and a half billion pounds in round numbers on these Olympics, which is far more than was originally advertised at a point when there are uh, supposed to be a lot of spending cuts. What are the chances we're actually going to get a return on that investment here in, in London? We've seen from the government some estimates that um, they think the benefits uh, would be about £13 billion pounds, uh, over the indefinite future. And how do you compute that? Um, well, I think they try and make estimates of what the benefits in terms of investment and greater tourism and so forth coming into London. Um, and I think on, on those types of returns, which I think, to be honest with you, it's hard for us to assess mm. as outsiders their numbers. We think, though, that there are reasons, if you take that at face value, to say that's an underestimate of the overall costing, because these numbers don't include what costs you can recoup by selling the houses in the Olympic Village and so forth and so on, uh, where you can reclaim some of the expenditure that's already been made. Wow, so, so the, you're actually suggesting that these benefits have been understated. That's, that's encouraging. All right, I think so, and I think you know, our view is that on a, a purely kind of cost-benefit analysis, there is a positive return to the Olympics. Not all of that will accrue immediately. Mm. Um, in the short term, there'll be some costs, some uh, disruption, as you said. Um, but if we account over the longer periods and allow these longer-term benefits to accrue, I think there is a positive. There's a different question, though, mm. of course, uh, as to whether the return you're getting on your investment is sufficient to pay the capital cost or is better than the return you may have got on alternative investments. I think our, our view <laughs> would probably be the answer to that is yes. But, I mean, it's very difficult to make this kind of opportunity cost assessment. Okay. And that was, again, uh, Goldman Sachs' perspective on the benefits of the Olympic Games. Now we go to Julian Chain uh, with the Counter-Olympics Network, um, and we're talking about the costs of the Games and uh, the perceived benefits. Well, great. I want to first um, start by asking you how you initially got involved in um, the Counter-Olympics, um, which is a grassroots organization. Can you tell me a little bit about... Um, the group and uh, how you got your start in opposing the Olympic Games? Well, I mean, I got my start because I um, was evicted to make way for the Olympic Games. Um, uh, I, was, uh, I had to leave uh, where I lived, a place called Clay's Lane, um, in July 2007 um, because the, the state was uh, compulsorily purchased by the LDA, the London Development Agency, in preparation for the Games. So, um, I, I mean, I'd already been involved in opposing the Games before that because uh, once I knew that the Games was coming, or what might be coming, I objected to the various planning applications. And then after the Games uh, bid was won, I um, was involved in opposing the compulsory purchase order and gave evidence to the inquiry and, um, you know, um, was, it was part of the, the uh, residence group that um, fought the order. I mean, of course, we were unsuccessful. There was never, never any chance we were going to win this, but uh, nevertheless, we still went ahead and tried to, um, tried to combat it. Why, why, were, why were you evicted? And I guess um, more appropriately, Appropriately, why was Clay's Lane? Um, um, why did this um, residential development need to be displaced for the games? Um, well, because uh, they drew the, the basically they just drew the line around it to say you're inside of the park. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, it, there's a lot of obviously there's a, there's a lot more to this story than just that. But uh, the first. Uh, a location of the park, in fact, was further south. I'm not entirely sure that Clay's Lane would have been included in it, but uh, when they came up with their their second application, because they had a sort of uh, um, a feasibility study, a kind of um, um, preliminary plan, and I don't think I'm not sure whether Clay's Lane was included. I never saw that. But um, in 2003, they presented a plan which included Clay's Lane within the area of the park. Um, and it's just an indication, really, of their bad faith. That the very first thing they said to us when they came to talk to the community, they came to the, our community 
after they'd been to a whole lot of other communities which were not affected. Um, and then they came to our community. We were the last people they visited. And they said to us that we would be, our state was going to be demolished, even if the Olympics didn't come, which was complete rubbish. And we uh, checked this. We asked them afterwards, because they had a diagram and everything showing a not what they called a non-Olympic scenario. So we did some checking, and we just, uh, well, we asked them and said, okay, can we have more details about this plan? And um, we were then told the plan didn't exist. Um, and I think that really kind of, to me, pretty much sums up really the whole, in fact, there are two things which sum up the whole Olympics for me. That is one of them. That's our personal experience. Um, later, we discovered there had been a, a report, which was called Game Plan Report, which was produced in 2002. It was signed by Tony Blair. His, his uh, face is on the front of the um, report. And in that, the government, it was, um, I can't remember if it was the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. I think it may have been a, both a mixture of the Department of Media and Sport plus um, the Cabinet Office. Anyway, this report said, in chapter two, in hosting mega events, it said, don't expect to get economic benefits from hosting a mega event. The main, uh, main thing that will happen is you have a national celebration. So, I mean, when you think about the fact that they had that advice, they, and then they just simply went ahead and said, we're going to get enormous benefits, economic benefits, all sorts of different benefits. Um, and then they came to us and claimed that they had a plan for our removal, even if there was no Olympics. I mean, I think it's just, uh, that just about sums up the whole thing, that you should have two um, statements like that. One which says, you know, the project will not deliver benefits, and the second which says you're going to go even if the, they, the Olympics don't come. Uh, to me, just sums up the way in which this whole project exists. It's a sort of fantasy, really. I, I want to uh, go go back to the housing, but momentarily, just to sure. add on to that, there there's this interesting um, dualism between um, saying it's often the argument is, oh, but the costs, um, you know, what are the projected costs? Fourteen billion dollars, is that right for the London Games? Uh, well, again, is that right? Yeah, well. Yeah, the, the projected costs are meaningless. Right, but yeah. Didn't, yeah, they say, sure. oh, it's all public infrastructure, um, yeah. and we need this anyway. That's often mm. the logic um, to justify to justify those expenses. Mm. That's not to yeah. mention the security and um, yeah. what something that you'd not have, you wouldn't have in any if you didn't have the games, you wouldn't have that need for a militarized city. Oh. Absolutely, uh, but um, I just think it's interesting how it's it's a it's a very much a flexible language in justifying the costs. Well, you see, the interesting thing is actually there's very little infrastructure that's been built uh, regard in connection with the games. Um, I mean, apart from the stadiums, um, there really isn't much else because uh, the the place they've chosen, Stratford in East London, is an old railway town. It's it's the uh, railway suburb. I mean. It, it's a um, back when in the Victorian period when London was expanding eastwards as well as every in every other direction um, that, that expansion was driven by the railways and the new developments sprang up along the side of the railways and um, Stratford was the major hub railway hub in East London and so Stratford was always a very well connected place and Stratford, had, they haven't actually built any new lines connected with um, with the Olympics because they claim this is uh, this is where you just get this sort of straightforward lying. They claim that they've produced um, two new lines. One is what's called a Docklands Light, Ra Light Railway, which is a new syst uh, um, railway system in East London. Um, actually, the line which that the line which they're talking about. Um, was already planned. It was all, you know, it was one of those things that was just sort of about to happen when the Olympics came along. So it's <laughs> completely untrue to say that it has anything to do with the Olympics. <laughs> the, other, the other one is an extension of a line which already exists in Stratford called the Overground. And, um, and again, that line was already being planned. And so actually apart from that, there's a little bit of, there were some improvements to Stratford Station because the capacity of the station wasn't, uh, wasn't, great enough to carry all of this traffic that's going to come in 
But I mean, that's again unnecessary because for the for once the Olympics is gone, Stratford would have had a perfectly good station, and um, so yeah, it's good for the Olympics, but it's not really needed in itself. Right. So for the rest of it, we're talking about the fact that you know they're just building stadiums. Right. So there isn't any infrastructure as such that's come in, and of course the cost, the budget itself is completely opaque because it starts off at two point three seven billion. Then it went up to 9.34 billion. The House of Commons recently, a, a, a select committee, I think it was the Accounts Committee, came up with a figure of 11 billion. But these figures are all just stabs in the dark, really. Sky came up with a figure of 24 billion. Um, now they've included these transport infrastructure improvements, which I wouldn't put in because they're not Olympic projects. But the interesting thing is, of course, they are claimed by the Olympics. So if they're claimed, then it's quite reasonable to put them in the budget. But if we were to say, for example, add up all of the other costs which are not in the budget, like, for example, the acquisition of the land on which the park is built, uh, the, the, the stadiums are built, that isn't included in the cost of the, isn't, isn't included in these costs. Quite extraordinary, really. Mm -hmm. The supposed cleanup of the land, the remediation of the land, that's not included in the budget. Um, and of course, then there's all the spending in all the government departments, local councils, and the rest of it. None of that's in the budget. And then there's extra security spending, which um, isn't met in the budget, but which we know is happening because the security minister said that much of the ordinary security budget will go on the Olympics. Then there's all the police movements, um, which are not in the budget. So um, I, I would say, taking out the transport infrastructure, which is not an Olympic project, I would say the cost as it stands at the moment is somewhere in the region of 17 billion pounds. Now, in terms of dollars, I think that would probably be somewhere in the region of 23 billion dollars. I don't know roughly. Mm -hmm. So, and this is yeah, and this is coming at a time of austerity for regular uh, working yeah. class people yeah. in in London. Is, yes, I mean there is a problem there, which is of course that the games was put together at a time of. Um, allegedly, uh, you know, the boom years, the property boom years of the early 2000s. So, um, in a way, the austerity side of it, in a sense, is, I mean, that's something which has come along after the event. And, of course, there is spending which could have been diverted for that. But much of the spending, in a sense, was already earmarked. It was kind of difficult to change that. But you're quite right. I mean, this doesn't help. It does mean that money which would have been available to uh, help overcome uh, budgetary problems is not available. And it also means, of course, that instead of building things which you might say were of some use, i.e. the opportunity costs, right. um, you could have built um, housing, hospitals, schools, things like that. You just build a bunch of stadiums, which frankly are not going to be used very much. They're not going to be much use to the general public. The main stadium is probably going to end up with a football club. They're not going to get their costs back on that. The aquatic centre will certainly not recover its costs and will lose money. And it's not going to be much use to families with children. You know, it's an enormous pool. The velodrome, again, um, is a, an elite cycling facility and it's not going to be used by many people. So um, much of these, many, these facilities, by and large, are not going to be available to the public and they're not going to make any money. And they're going to cost quite a lot of money to maintain. And... Um, so the, this, this kind of expenditure is kind of pointless, really. It doesn't produce any great result. And on top of that, of course, there are some facilities which they're just pulling down. Um, there are some um, bits of the park, I can't remember which, which ones. There's a basketball arena, which I think they're sending to, to Brazil. Um, and there are various other uh, bits and pieces they're pulling down. And of course, they built the equestrian center at um, Greenwich, which is a beautiful park, which has been just torn apart by this event. And that's all just going to be thrown away. Right. They could have built that at another existing facility out in the country, like Hickstead or somewhere like that. Um, and they would have had legacy. The same thing with the shooting. There's a very famous centre at a place called Bisley, which um, they could have upgraded. And instead, they decided to go to this Woolwich facility, which they're just going to, again, throw away. So it's bizarre, really. Their expenditure is quite deliberately not producing any kind of sporting legacy um so in terms of the spending on actual kind of 
buildings, uh, there's only going to be a certain amount of building that's going to remain, and a lot of that is going to be completely useless for them, for you know most people. Radiohead with dollars and cents, and uh, before the break, you heard from Julian Chain, and he is spokesperson for the Counter Olympics Network in London. And uh, we were talking about the costs and um, the proposed um, benefits of the Olympic Games um, occurring right now um, in London, England. This is the city on CITR 101.9 FM. CITR.ca and also syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. Thanks so much for tuning in. And the series is London Plays Games Part 2, the remaking of East London. And we're going to continue um, with uh, more on uh, the remaking and, and change occurring in East London um, as part of the Olympic Games. Um, but first we're going to take a quick break um, and then we're going to be back um, to hear more. Want to know what's up at UBC? Read the UBC. It's only the largest student newspaper in Western Canada, and it's written and edited entirely by UBC students. The UBC is your source for on-campus news, culture, and sports. New editions come out every Monday and Thursday. For breaking news as well as amazing videos and blogs, check out ubc.ca.
distance between Vancouver and Buenos Aires, 11,000 kilometers. From August 31st to September 9, the Vancouver Latin American Film Festival will bring Buenos Aires right at home. www.vlaff.org And welcome back to the city again here on CITR 101.9 FM, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. And all of the past podcasts can be found at thecityfm.org. And you can find part one in this miniseries on London and the London 2010 Olympic Games at thecityfm.org. And uh, now we're going to go to um, a perspective from CBRE. And CBRE is a Fortune 500 uh, commercial property um, uh, development firm. And uh, they, are one of, they are the largest commercial real estate uh, multinational. And uh, we're going to hear um, an excerpt from a discussion, which uh, actually you can find uh, online on YouTube. Um, but hearing uh, a perspective um, from property developers and that uh, commercial real estate community on what they see as the benefits of the redevelopment and the the, rede- the remaking of East London and those neighborhoods, um, which have historically been working class industrial neighborhoods. Watch this space. I'm Laura Rowley. London is in the midst of the excitement and pageantry of the Olympics. But what will the Games really do for London's economy? And what has been the legacy for other cities that have hosted the Games? Joining me to discuss that are Matthew Black, Senior Director, who joins me from London, Chris Brook, President and CEO China, and Wayne Redman, Head of Structured Transactions and Advisory Services from Sydney. Matthew, what has been the immediate impact on Stratford, East London, the site of the Olympic Park? Well, I think it's, it's very important to look back at what the area or where the area has come from. This is very much a downhill, heavily utilised industrial, industrial area of London that had been underused for the last 20, 30 years since the ports had died. And without the Olympics, we wouldn't have had the opportunity to undertake such a large-scale regeneration and put back into the centre of London such a crucial area. And we've seen a, a large amount of development during the past five years with the building of the Olympic Park and in addition the construction of Westfield's 1.9 million square foot shopping centre which has really helped put Stratford on the map for London. What's so good about this area of London and what will it look like after the Games? Well I think it's, the, the key point for, for, for London and for the Olympic bid was that the Legacy was always the overriding factor of the bid, and it was all, it's all been about what will London look like in 2013 once the games have been and gone. And this is an area that has unequivocal uh, public transport access. You've got nine overland railway lines going through, connecting the centre of the city, two tube lines, Docklands Light Railway, so it has the best connection in the country which allows it to become part of the city and to really fulfil its potential that it did in the past. Absolutely. The ability to regenerate such a vast area of land so close to the centre of London wouldn't have been possible without something as big as the Olympic Games. This is going to bring Stratford back to, to, to its former glory and become a core part of central London. And that was a CBRE perspective on the, the benefits um, of the Olympic Games and the possibilities for uh, from a commercial real estate perspective and property development perspective. And uh, contrast that now with Julian Chain of the Counter Olympics Network, a grassroots grass uh, roots network, excuse me, uh, which is opposed uh, to the games and is mobilizing against um, the remaking and redevelopment schemes um, underway um, as a result of the London 2012 games. East London, where the uh, Olympics is being held, well, not all the Olympics, Olympic Park is being built, is um, is the poor part of London. Um, the central part, the city of Westminster, the city of London, um, and the, the, uh, Kensington, Chelsea, and places like that, um, they are all, uh, they're, they're, 
these are the places where you know the the, the money is, and East London is the smelly, dirty Docklands part of London. Of course, the docks are all closed now, but because the heavy industry and the dirty industry is slowly moving out of East London, and because property prices in other parts of London are still very high, because London has this very strange property market in which a lot of foreign capital comes in because people want to buy, somebody wants to have a flat in New York, they want to have a flat in London, they want to have a flat in Paris and so on. So there's a lot of international money coming into the top end of the market, which means that the rest of the market is somewhat distorted. Mm -hmm. And so um, East London, as this rundown part of London, um, is the place where really the property market, the property developers have their eyes on because this is the place that they can make a lot of money out of. They can knock down um, old factories and so on or possibly just even convert them because some of these old warehouses now are considered to be quite desirable buildings. So the process of sort of moving eastwards has begun. Right. And we've already had the Docklands Development Corporation, which has redeveloped, you could say, the whole of the Docklands or a large part of the Docklands area, an area called the Isle of Dogs, and uh, which has nothing to do with uh, Docklands, actually. The Isle of Dogs was a place where the kings used to keep their dogs, <laughs> supposedly, the hunting <laughs> dogs. Anyway, but the areas along the, the side of the river, which used to be um, really um, the sort of place that, you know, if you had any money, you wouldn't go there unless you were doing business. I mean, nobody would ever go to these places. These are now very fashionable, and they've got all sorts of new developments going on there, completely changing the whole character of these areas. Is this seen uh, as one of the final frontiers of property redevelopment absolutely. and well, gentrification? It, yeah, it was, but it's not now. It's now well established because um, if you look at a Google map of London and you you move your map further east from the city of London, you will go past places like the Cats and Catherine's Dock, Limehouse, uh, Canary Wharf, different parts of the Isle of Dogs, and you will see lots and lots of blocks of flats and um, yachts, marinas, all sorts of things like that, which are completely different and enormous skyscrapers because this is completely altered, this whole area. So that is what has already happened, and that is the kind of property boom which East London is meant to represent. But the rest of the East End is still it hasn't been hit by this um, kind of development. I mean, there are developments, but it's sort of, it's, it's mainly down in that area of Docklands. What is happening in East London generally is that there is a process, what you might call a fairly, a rather more natural process, where if, if you can call it natural, of the middle classes moving east, because there is a lot of quite nice housing in the east, even though it's not as wealthy as in the west. Um, Still, you know, there's Victorian housing, small Victorian houses. In fact, some places quite large Victorian houses. And these are, um, uh, English people tend to like historical, historic houses. They're not really into, I mean, I'm not saying that nobody will buy um, modern apartments. They will. But there is a sort of penchant for building, for buying old, uh, even, uh, the older the better in a way, um, historic properties and um, doing them up on the interior, but having a nice, um, old f facade on the outside. So, and the, uh, there's quite a lot of this property in East London. So there are places which are now becoming quite fashionable. Um, they probably, the names probably won't mean much to you, but places like Stoke Newington, Broadway Market, um, and um, there are bits of Stepney, which is where I live, which are becoming quite fashionable. Right. Um, so these, this is a sort of process which is underway. And... Um, at the same time, there is also a degree of building flats and blocks of flats, particularly in the Stratford area. Um, and this has nothing to do with Olympics. This process is underway, and Stratford High Street, which is uh, the main road going into Stratford, has a lot of, lot of modern, not particularly nice, but lots of modern, quite tall skyscrapers or blocks of flats. There are one or two skyscrapers. There are some which are just um, lower blocks, but that area is changing and this is a process which is happening regardless of the Olympics and this is one of the curious things about the Olympics is that they claim that the Olympics is needed to redevelop East London but actually this process is underway mm -hmm. and one of the major projects in East London is called Stratford City which again has nothing to do with Olympics but you may have heard that there's a very large shopping mall mm -hmm. in Stratford which has opened at the same time as the Olympics which is a Westfield shopping centre 
Um, well, that, a lot of people don't understand the history of this, think that, that Westfield has gone to Stratford because of the Olympics. But actually this project, Westfield itself may have done so because Westfield was actually brought in later. But I don't think so because Westfield had its eye on this site uh, long ago. But this is a project which has been developed going back into the 1990s by Newham Council because they had this very large area of rail lands which were derelicts and which were the, the railways had gone and they were uh, they had this vacant land and they wanted to use it. And so they've been promoting this project and they wanted to have a shopping mall there. I mean, there was already a shopping mall in Stratford, but they wanted to have a really big one. So they got this shopping mall and a lot of offices base and other building, other projects are going on there as well. So uh, including housing, conference centers, hotels, all sorts okay. of stuff. So this project was already in existence before the Olympics. And um, just because two things happen at roughly the same time doesn't mean that they're connected. Um, so this redevelopment process was already underway. And it's a measure of the kind of importance of the, of the Stratford City site that it was going to create 35,000 jobs. So that was, you know, that, that was its, its specification. Whereas the Olympics, when it was describing what it was going to achieve, was talking about 6,000 net new jobs because 5,000 jobs were being moved out of the Olympic Park to make way for this project. So what you have is actually a kind of mythology about regeneration. Um, I mean, these are not, I mean, when I talk about regeneration, redevelopment, I'm not talking about something which is good necessarily because actually there are aspects of this project which are pretty horrible. But yeah. um, what, we're, what we're talking about here is the claims that are made. And the claim is that East London requires Olympics for redevelopment. And this is simply not true. Do you think the games, though, are, are quickening the rate at which social upgrading in the East End occurs? Well, no. You see, this is the irony, is that actually a guy called Jason Pryor, who's the master planner of the Olympics, before they got their message together, he said, which is entirely, entirely sensible, he said, we are taking a large piece of land out of circulation because they're going to build, you know, the sports facilities there. So actually, by doing this, we are removing land from development. We are slowing up development in the area, which is an interesting point, because actually, it's quite obvious. So there is an irony here, which is that if the Olympics hadn't come, the, the, the area which is now part of the Olympic Park would have been available for development and flats, houses and so on would have been built in that area. And parkland was going to be developed. Um, the old industrial area was going to be reduced and, um, and it would have been sort of tidied up. So actually... The Olympics has contributed virtually nothing in that sense. You've already got Stratford City. You've got all this flat building which is going on, which, again, is happening regardless of the Olympics and probably owes more to Stratford City than anything else. But it's a program which is underway because Stratford has a lot of rivers and canals running through it, which make it an ideal, ideal location for flats because people love building flats next door to rivers and canals. Mm -hmm. They know that they'll sell for a very good price because people like to look out of their uh, flat window or you know, sit on that balcony and look down at the canal below. So, you know, these, the, it has a lot of advantages. And as I say, it's already got very good transport connections. Yeah. So Stratford was, in a sense, the second Docklands. It was already lined up to be the place where development was going to happen next on this big scale, rather than the kind of what I'm talking about, the rather small scale buying up of Victorian houses, which was going on anyway by the middle classes. We're talking about here about the big plans, you know, mm -hmm. redevelop the whole uh, of the rail lands, the, the you know the rebuilding of a uh, of Stratford High Street, which is a long road. Um, I mean, it's not a very long road in the sense of I know in America you have roads which go on for miles and miles and miles, but in in Britain this is a a big highway. It's about a mile long, going from Bow into the centre of Stratford. So it's a major thoroughfare, and um, it's uh, you know now it's got blocks of flats all the way along it. So. Essentially, this program of alteration of Stratford was already underway. What the Olympics has done, though, which is a kind of different dimension to this program, is that and when you go back, you remember, go back to this statement from the game plan report, which says don't expect to get economic benefits from the Olympics. So you think, OK, this is the prime minister's got this document. The cabinet knows about it. And yet they go ahead with this program. And yet they know that it's not going to deliver these benefits. So what are they up to? 
So you have to put this to my mind in the context of the property boom in the 2000s and look at and say, okay, here you have the opportunity. The IOC wants to have this Olympic Park. Here you have the opportunity for compulsory purchase. You can come in under the, um, the, in the guise of this national program of um, creating the Olympic Games. For that, you need this Olympic Park. That gives you the cover under which to buy up a lot of land at a very cheap price because compulsory purchase is, a, is frankly not a very pleasant process. You go in, you say to people, this is what this is the money we'll give you. They say that's not enough. You say, well, you know, hard cheese. If you don't like it, take us to court. So basically, you get to go and you set the rules. Now, of course, there are people who argue about this. They're still arguing about it. But it's uh, an expensive and tedious and hard, hard, hard process. Right. So you will, will accept the offer and they'll move on and forget about it. So what, what has happened here is that the, that the Olympics has given um, London, Newham, it's not Newham's, it wasn't Newham's uh, compulsory purchase, it was the London Development Agency, which is the London city government, um, not the city corporation, I know this is very confusing, the GLA air, uh, government, um, the power to come in and buy up a large piece of land now, the difference between the redevelopment that's going on around the Olympic Park and what happens within the Olympic Park is that the Olympic Park requires the total destruction of everything within it, whereas the redevelopment that's going on around it, by and large, means the demolition of um, some existing office blocks, some of which were virtually unused, because Stratford. High Street was wasn't was a fairly rundown road, and there were quite a lot of offices and buildings in there which weren't really being used a great deal. So it does it, it does involve purchasing some buildings, but they get purchased under the normal market rules. This is not compulsory purchase. So you have a, a development program which is going on within the context of the existing land ownership structure, whereas in the Olympic Park, all of those existing landowners and users are simply swept away. And this gives the authorities the chance to quite literally cleanse that area. So one of the very clear specifications of the, um, for, the, for this land clearance was that they wanted to remove this dirty industry. Um, in, in, in England, the prevailing winds come from the west or the southwest, uh, up the Caribbean, you might say, up all the way up through the Atlantic. And so this means that the... The smelly stuff is basically usually put in the east, on the east side of towns in England. And so the east, the east end, partly for this reason, is where the dirty industry ended up. But now, as we're moving into a new age, the idea is actually to either move that industry further east or to remove it altogether. And Is a lot um, of that industry, though, those are the working class jobs in London? Exactly. Yeah, that, that's what dirty industry is, basically. Yeah. Manual jobs. And that's exactly, you're quite right, that's the point. This is getting rid of that kind of low-class, working-class, manual activity, which, of course, doesn't look very pretty. Yeah. Now, one of the things, therefore, you do is you also stigmatize the area where you're, which you're going to cleanse by talking about it in a, sort of apocalyptic terms as being a wasteland, a desert, one of the ODA people called it an urban desert. I mean, this is just way over the top kind of language. But because nobody goes there, and frankly, you know, the east end of London is thought of as being a really pretty much of a no-go area for the middle classes. You know, they're beginning to explore it these days, but it's not the sort of place you first think of when you think about buying a house. It's the place you think of after you find you can't afford to live in West London, you can't afford to live in North London, mm -hmm. and don't want to live in South London. And you think, well, <laughs> where do you go? <laughs> in East London, that's, that's, that's entirely, you know, third, fourth, fifth choice. So the middle classes that are moving in are, to a certain extent, kind of a fairly adventurous bunch of people. I mean, that's the way they consider themselves. So um, uh, the, 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 the reputation of East London is that it's a slum. It's a place where criminals and um, immigrants live. Um, the Docklands was the place where people uh, would have arrived on ships. And so that's where you had 
a variety of immigrant communities. Um, you may have heard of a place called Brick Lane. I don't know. <laughs> this is a, a place where, right back in the 17th century, first of all, you had Huguenot refugees from France settling. Then you had, uh, these were Protestants, who were Protestants who were driven out of France by Louis XIV. Then you had um, Jewish refugees from Russia and, the far, and Eastern Europe um, escaping pogroms and so on. Then you had um, people who were coming, who, sailors like Lascars and West Africans and people who were coming in on ships and they would settle in uh, places like Limehouse. It was, Limehouse had a strong Chinese community with people who were working on ships in um, they were famous for working in the laundry on liners and so on. Um, and then more recently, you've had Bangladeshi people settling in uh, East London. So these communities have sprung up, and then as they've moved, as they've become more prosperous, they move out of East London, they go and live elsewhere. Um, and you have, uh, so there's a very diverse population. I mean, Newham, um, uh, Hackney, uh I'm trying to think, uh, Waltham Forest, the, the, the four Olympic boroughs are Newham, Hackney, Waltham Forest, and um, Tar Hamlets. These are the four boroughs, which I suppose probably the most diverse in, in London, apart from maybe Brent, which is in north northwest of um, um, London. I mean, there are other parts of London which are also have large minor, minority communities. Um, but you would Lam say the Olympic boroughs are the are predominantly um, minority, yeah, exactly. Minority on, majority communities. Yeah, you sit on the tube and uh, you pass through these boroughs, and the complexions of the people changes. And then you go out the other side, and you go back to being a paler complexion. You go further west, and again the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it is quite noticeable, and uh, the 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 white population is still the largest community, but they're not the majority. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the migrant communities are majorities. I'm not so sure about Waltham Forest. Waltham Forest is probably a little bit more because um, further north in Waltham Forest it changes again. But um, Newham, Hackney, and Tar Hamlets in particular are very mixed. And, and what are the what are the job prospects like for for people in these neighborhoods? The, the job prospects, as I'm afraid to say, it's the same all over the world. In poor areas, folks are poorer. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. And you're listening to London Plays Games, part two, a mini-series, The Remaking of East London on the City, on CITR 101.9 FM, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. And this is an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions, and you can find more about the program at thecityfm.org, or search uh, in uh, your uh, browser, uh, The City critical urban discussions and we're going to wrap up this episode um, of the city um, with part three of my discussion with Julian Chain of the Counter Olympics Network and we're continuing our conversation about the middle class makeover of East London uh, boroughs and uh, the politics of redevelopment and the urban growth machine politics um, evident as part of mega events uh, such as the 2012 uh, London Games. To go back to this thing about the uh, the deprivation of East London, of course, the problem here is is that this is again used against East London because the fact that London is East London is the poor part, it's the smelly part, um, all the rest of it, also means that it then gets treated as being the part that needs to be rescued, and so this is where you get all this language about uh, deprivation and um, regeneration comes in. Um, and therefore, East London is very vulnerable because it, it, it means that not only is it valuable because the land is valuable, but it's also a place that people make out that they're doing you some kind of favor by coming along and kicking you out. So essentially, you have this strange situation in which 
you, the, the uh, a piece of land is identified, it's described as being an absolute, um, absolutely appalling place, and therefore, you know, desperately needs to be bought up. So therefore, it can be acquired under compulsory purchase at low price. The land will then be cleared of its existing users. So the jobs, 5,000 jobs, which local people do, are then cleared out. The people who live there, which included me, although I have to say I'm not a native East Londoner, um, but I lived there for, eight, for 16 years, uh, we get moved out. The other facilities which are there get demolished, all in the name of saving the area. And um, we already, as I said, the area already has a regeneration program. That is um, kind of overlooked or treated as being almost like a part of the Olympics and nothing, not a separate project. Um, the facilities which are already excellent in terms of transport are then used to justify using the space. But at the same time, false claims are made about further transport infrastructure improvements. And of course, then you have the idea, well, the, the Olympics is going to regenerate the area. But how is it going to do that? Well, it's actually going to bring in a new population, which, of course, will alter all the statistics, and make it look as though, indeed, East London has benefited. But it's not East London who benefited. Their jobs have gone. The area is almost certainly going to become more expensive as a result of the changes which are occurring. So more East Londoners will leave Stratford. The kind of jobs which will come in, by and large, these people will not be able to qualify. They won't qualify for these jobs. So the jobs will go to people outside of the area or people who move into the area as new settlers. Um, and um, this zone which will have been created will be seen as being a kind of island development which will then impact on the locality because the the new authority which is going to govern this area it's not going to be planned and, and uh, managed by the local authorities the four boroughs um, as I said Newham is the one which has most of the Olympic Park in it Hackney has the second largest block Bolton Forest I think has the third and Tower Hamlets has the smallest they won't actually have control of this park land, this, this park. It, it will be governed by another body, which is, which is the mayor's, mayor of London's um, uh, development company. I've forgotten the exact title, but anyway, something like that. And he, that will also have control over the fringes of the park, because the idea is, of course, that you then start to develop the edge of the park along the same lines of what's going on inside of the park, which again means more pushing out local people and one of the developments which is already scheduled is a thing called uh, there's an estate called the Carpenters Road Estate that estate is going to be demolished to make way for a development of a university campus hmm. now you have to say that all of these the trouble is the, lo the local authorities are part and parcel of the problem here because they they consider this process of gentrification to be desirable Mm -hmm. And there are people like me who argue that really this process should be happening in a, in a much more um, sympathetic way as being really just old fogies, you know, we're just, uh, we, don't, we don't really know what we're talking about. So as far as they're concerned, um, they approve of this and they want it to happen. Now, yeah. are, are any local um, municipal or borough um, officials, politicians, um, have they come um to stand in solidarity to, to no. oppose the games? No, 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 no. The whole political class from every level of national, city, and local politics is behind the games. There are very, very few. I mean, I don't actually know. I know of one GLA councillor, in uh, GLA assembly member mm -hmm. in Hackney, who is, I guess you could say, just about as far as you get as close to being anti-Olympics as anybody that I know. He asks very uh, pertinent questions and, um, you know, expresses a lot of scepticism about the whole thing. But actually, uh, there we are, have a very tightly controlled political class. And once the people at the top say, this is what we're going to do, it goes all the way through the system. The number of mavericks who stand out against this is very, very small. I'm not saying that there aren't any MPs who mutter behind their, you know, um, behind their beer and so on. But they they don't really come out and get involved in this. There are one or two, there, there may be a, an MP or two who has, because I think there may be an MP who might come and speak on our march. Um, but this is, they're, they're MPs who are pretty much on the fringe of, you know, any sort of power base. 
I, I, you, you have to say that anybody who has any ambitions to be anything in politics is absolutely up for the Olympics and does not speak out about it. There's a lot of fear within the political system about opposing the Olympics. It, um, sorry. The, yeah. the Games have been characterized um, by one um, activist and academic, Jules Boykoff, as... Um, Celebration capitalism. Yeah, celebration and this, capitalism. Exactly. This is yes, the, I, yeah. I've met Jules. He's been coming around London. I've had quite, had quite a lot of. I went to his talk on the on the topic in London. Right. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Go on. Yeah. You know, and I was just going to comment. I, I think it's an interesting way to to mm. think about the Olympic Games because it is. Um, it's all dressed in this uh, very happy, upbeat language um, of celebration and fun, um, and this is the um, the twin of disaster capitalism. And I, I just think it's um, it's a very telling, and I think it's a useful lens of how to how to look at a lot of what's going on. Because as you say, it's it's um, it's often difficult even to find uh, progressive, so-called progressive or leftist mm. politicians uh, who will come out and uh, yeah. stand against the games. I think that there is a sort of, um, how can I put it? I mean, the Olympics has managed to position itself as being, you know, this greatest show on earth and inspiring a generation kind of stuff. I mean, these slogans are very powerful and the language, you know, that the... the um, well, sport itself, as a sort of product, consumer product, has a lot of mileage in it these days. You know, fans, um, there's a great market for sports stuff. And so people are very reluctant to offend sports fans. They're reluctant to get involved in an argument about something which um, it presents itself anyway, although it isn't really, presents itself as being sort of apolitical above all these horrible arguments and so on, and a sort of celebration of uh, real joy and so on. I mean, this is part of the problem is that when you're arguing about it, you do uh, get immediately described as being a kind of moaner and a groaner and a person who can't have fun and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so these these are, well, I mean, this is what happens because this, this is the way in which a lot of debate occurs, you know. Oh, you're just being negative for the sake of it. Well, you know, that's absolutely rubbish. But unfortunately, this does play to a certain audience. And the media goes on about this, you know, why are you going on about it? When you actually come up with the arguments people tend to fall silent because they don't really know. Mm -hmm. And they are actually quite surprised when you say, well, actually, tourism is not going to increase. They say, really? What? Where, where do you get that idea from? And you say, well, you know, look at the research. Look at the, what the European Tour Operators Association has been saying for years. And they say, well, that's how does that work? And they say, well, you know, displacement of existing tourists and so on. And, uh, you know, a third of the hotel rooms in London are vacant. Well, what? <laughs> where do you get that from? Look at the media. That's what it says. So you, the, people are kind of um, they, they have this idea of this fantastic project which is going to deliver the benefits for the rest of it and then when it becomes a little bit clearer they, they actually kind of think well maybe this is not quite what it is and in Britain now I mean the, people are the British have this kind of reputation for not being fantastically uh, enthusiastic people and being a bit gloomy and all the rest of it and uh, they all think oh well it'll all come good at the moment you know they'll suddenly get into the spirit of it but actually, the opinion in Britain is that, I mean, only 20% of people think that the Olympics is going to deliver benefits for them. And the, in terms of the number of people who think that London should have, bidded, should have bid for the Games, that is now pretty much half and half. Outside hmm. of London, a majority of people think that they should not have bid for the Games. Inside of London, a small majority think they should have bid for the Games. Hmm. So, you know, this is not a small faction within the population. It's now pretty deeply embedded. And this may this may have repercussions for the future because depending on how you know this goes off, of course the media and the politicians are all going to say it's a fantastic event and they're going to be highlighting you know the gold medals and all that stuff. But after the games are over, there's going to be quite a headache in London, and um, there's going to be a lot of argument about uh, you know the so-called legacy and you know what exactly we got out of it. And I think that the opinion will swing. Uh, this is my feeling is that the opinion will swing pretty heavily against the games after the games and that was julian chain and we were discussing uh among uh, many things the remaking of east london and uh processes of of urban social change 
And uh, we're at the end of the program. This is The City on CITR 101.9 FM, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. And thank you so much for tuning in. You can find uh, past podcasts um, and this program as a podcast at thecityfm.org. Be sure to follow The City on Twitter with the handle thecity underscore FM. Find us on Facebook as well by searching The City Critical Urban Discussions. And again, um, we'll be back next week for more critical urban discussions. And we're going to leave you with a track from Homo Duplex um, off their new release. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great week.